0: Following is a drop D podcast production. DarkMyths.org and the Media Group proudly present to you the Lone Gunman Podcast. Be sure your host, Rob Clark, where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. Be right there.
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Lone Gummin' Podcast. This is episode number 151. And back on the show is my guest, my special guest, Mr. X, who was kind enough to join me last week. He's back this week. We're going to continue the story, continue the narrative. We laid out the global groundwork for you last week, so I would encourage everyone, if you did not listen to last week's show, go back and listen to it first before listening to this one, because we're going to continue our arcing narrative um, through the process of the Kennedy assassination and those involved and associated with it. That being said, I wanted to say this real quick before we get to Mr. X. I know a lot of people have been hearing ads on the shows. I decided to monetize the podcast in order to offset some of the costs to keep the shows alive and out there for everyone to enjoy even if I don't ever podcast another show again, I wanted to at least keep the shows alive and on the internet and searchable and findable for as long as possible. I've been on a blitz to get them all on the YouTube. Even if that happens, they'll at least be somewhere. So if you hear ads throughout the show, that's what it is. Just they're 15, 20 seconds long, pay them no mind. Um, they help pay the bills. So, with that being said, let's get right back into my guest here, Mr. X, joining me again. How you doing, buddy?
2: I'm good. Thanks for having me back on.
1: No problem at all. I mean, I'm, I'm digging this. I love thinking that is outside of the proverbial box when it comes to the assassination. And we're going to talk a little bit about one of the guys that I've had my eye on for a while, and that's Larry Crayford. But before we get into Crayford and go to Dallas— I wanted to start our conversation off in New Orleans and some of the ties that are there um, with some of these guys like David Ferry, um, Clay Shaw, Marcelo, and, and let's lay the groundwork there, and then we'll move on to Dallas a little bit, okay? Sure. All right, start us off in New Orleans, Mr. X.
2: Okay, so New Orleans, there's so much to talk about. It's hard to know really where to begin. Um, so <clears throat> I'll take it back as far as I can, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Clay Shaw, who was recruited into the OSS uh, during World War II. Uh, he was a, basically a CIA man his whole adult life. Um, he was connected to, uh, you know, he's been on the board of directors at Permandex, which is the uh, the the uh what was it? The World Trade it wasn't the World Trade Center, it was the uh yeah, the Trademart. Um so the yeah, building the inter-
1: International trademark there, yeah.
2: Right. So the building that Kennedy was en route to when he was shot was the Dallas Trademart, and that building was owned by Permandex. Um most people don't realize that, but yes, that building was owned by Permandex. Um Clayshaw had a bunch of aliases, and he did a lot of work in New York. Um, he went to Columbia University at the same time George DeMornShield did. Um, he was definitely connected to George DeMornShield. Uh, George DeMornShield is probably the most central person in the entire uh, assassination. Um, he is connected to everyone. He's connected di- directly uh, to the Kennedys. Um, Jackie Kennedy used to call him Uncle George. He is connected to... Um, he's connected to Hunt. He is connected to, uh, the FBI through Hostie. Hostie investigated him in the 1950s. He's obviously connected to Oswald and the Paines and George Bush. Yeah. And one of his first jobs in the oil biz down in Texas was for Humble Oil, which is where he got connected to Prescott Bush and Jack Valenti and these guys. Um, and he had an ongoing personal relationship with uh, Lyndon Johnson as well. So it is hard to find somebody in the Kennedy assassination who isn't directly connected to George DeMorn Shield. Now, and as far as New Orleans goes, I have not uh, really uh, seen a whole lot of him going to New Orleans other than um, a reference to a meeting that he had that's in the FBI files Um Uh, I don't recall the gentleman's name, uh, but Garrison thought this guy was Arkatcha Smith, but based on the descriptions, uh, it was most likely DeMorne Shield meeting with Clay Shaw in New Orleans. So I I don't have any more information to present on that. It's one of the many things on my to-do list. But he was definitely connected to probably every single character. He was connected to the mob through a lawyer in New York named Mario Broad, B-R-O-D. And Mario Broad... Um, some speculated that he was mob before he got into intelligence. Others say he was intelligence and infiltrated the mob, which is very unlikely. Um, It was probably just a mutual relationship the entire time. But Broad was connected to a guy named uh, Herbert uh, Itkin. And Itkin was just another—he was just an informant. Uh, He would give him information when he got it on various things. But his initial handler was a guy named uh, Philip Harbin. And uh, Philip Harbin, uh, the CIA and the CIA documents, I mean, I think that half their internal documents are just you know, fake for the public to see eventually because these guys know who they're working with. They know who's who, but yet they send around internal documents that are like, who's this guy? Do we know who this is? Does he work for us? Nope, doesn't work for us, right? So, um, so they know who Philip Harbin is, and they uh, – as I mentioned, that Philip Harbin uh, was an alias for Phil Horton. Um, and so you have Itkin, who was uh, spoken to either by the FBI or you know the HSCA or one of these. I get it mixed up sometimes, but uh, he identified um, Harbin as George de Mornshield and so George de um was connected to the mob through this relationship with Mario Broad um, so that 's just another area that he 's connected now. In New Orleans it's very interesting because uh Oswald was uh born in New Orleans, allegedly. Like I said, I don't even know if Oswald's a real person at this point in time anymore. It could have been seven or eight Oswalds, who knows? Um but one according of the to games,
1: as we think was Oswald.
2: Yeah, uh well yeah, definitely. Um yeah. So we you know Oswald was impersonated down there, or that name was used by uh, Carrie Thornley in uh New Orleans. You know, the Perry Russo story about uh, Oswald uh being at uh, Clay Shaw's. I mean, that was that was most likely um uh, that was it was definitely not Oswald, but it was probably Carrie Thornley who uh, who that was. Um but Oswald had an uncle named Morette who was working for Carlos Marcello. And um he also had a first cousin whose name was I always forget her first name, but it's uh, Dorothea Moret. Um and she—Dorothy uh, is her middle name. She she was a false defector also. <laughs> Most people don't ever talk about her. She uh, was traveling—she was very young, traveling the world, uh, going to weird countries in the Eastern Bloc. Um, and so—and she spent time in the Soviet Union, uh, didn't actually defect. But uh, she was absolutely connected to the CIA and being sent around the world, who knows, maybe as a scout for future defectors. Who knows? But she was connected to the mob through her— uh, uncle, I believe, Moret was also her uncle. Or uh, this—see, there's some details I'm just hazy on. But the connection was there to the mob. The connection was there to the CIA. So you can see the I think saturation. It was her father.
1: Was it her father? That, yeah, I think. And I think first name was Marion, possibly, if I'm remembering correctly. Um,
2: I don't possibly. Yes, yeah, I, I have a slide on it. I'll I'll, I'll figure it out. But but uh, yeah, so that that CIA connection was there in the family from the very beginning, right? Um, and then to sidetrack just a little, you know, you've got, uh, you know, the two Marguerite Oswalds, one that's got a mole on her face, the other one that doesn't, you know, one's kind of short and squat and the other one's a little bit taller and thin. One wore glasses, one didn't. Uh, we have work histories for both of them, you know, so there's some CIA activity going on there. And that's, You know, before uh, Oswald is in the picture whatsoever, you know, from the time he was like five or six years old, they started to have this dual record of him. Um, And you've got who is it? Jack Armstrong. Is that his name who did the Harvey and Lee stuff? I don't really follow a lot of his conclusions. There were many people impersonating Oswald that didn't necessarily have to be one specific person like he claims it was. And the person that he claims is this uh, Lee Oswald, I believe, was just William Seymour. Um, but I believe he makes different references to different people as being this Lee, like Harvey was the good guy, Lee was the bad guy, something like that. His conclusions are yeah. a little far-fetched because there were multiple people using that identity. So,
1: right. um, John Armstrong, what's his name? John Armstrong. Yeah, yeah, on a sidetrack sure on another credit. thing,
2: Like, I'm really kind of frustrated at how many JFK researchers have the same name as people who are legit guilty in the investigation. Um, it's really quite frustrating to me. Uh, Jack White, Richard Bartholomew—I mean, there's at least a half a dozen guys who are JFK researchers. Who, when you Google that name, their stuff comes up, and not the bad guy who you're really researching. Right. Uh, to me, that's just more spycraft crap that they're, you know, dumping on us. Um, so, um, so yeah, New Orleans. Um, there's a lot of directions to go with New Orleans. You know, you've got well, the Lake train stuff, and you've got—Go oh, ahead.
1: I was going to say, look, I'm with David Ferry. Okay, so
2: David Ferry is – he is an intriguing guy and, like uh, Garrison said, probably one of the more important people in American history. Um, So let's start with the connection between Oswald and David Ferry with the um, Civil Air Patrol. Um, So first off, Civil Air Patrol was in part founded by – was D.L. Bird? Is that his name? or H.D. Bird, something like that. Bird, who was the owner of the Book yes. Depository, right? D.L. Bird, Yeah. D.L. Bird. You got the connection there uh, for, as a founder of the Civil Air Patrol and the Book Depository, and both of these were CIA operations. So the Civil Air Patrol was basically a front for multiple things. Uh, the Civil Air Patrol, number one, it was recruitment for CIA. Number two, it was a nexus of child trafficking. Um, it was also a uh, – played a pivotal role in the CIA's drug smuggling operations, Um, and just prostitution, human trafficking in general, um, because these guys, uh, under the guise of, you know, civil air patrol, they had a little place on the airport that they could go to and they could utilize and they had this network across the country. And so at any given time they could be at the airport, getting in a plane and hopping on a plane and just say, Oh, it was civil air patrol duty. But when in reality they were moving drugs, weapons, and people around, um, uh, I'm going to side reference here, the skating rinks, uh, the, the skating Mm -hmm. rinks,
1: uh, real quick before you get there, um just an interesting side note, the Civil Air Patrol offices were in the same building as the International Trademark in New Orleans that Clay Shaw was president of. So there's a interesting tidbit and and you know, David Ferry was seen many times in the offices of, of Clay Shaw, um, according to various witnesses.
2: Right. A lot of times that's how fronts work. A front will basically give you an opportunity to be in the same building but have a plausible deniability. Like people Need to understand plausible deniability is what causes these guys to do ninety percent of the spycraft stuff they do, so they can say nope, wasn't me, you know. Um, like if you look at Daily Plaza, you got a you know a half a dozen people that all you ever see is a camera up to their face, like that's spycraft stuff to block your face from being recognized, you know. So like oh, yeah. this spycraft stuff is all over the place and it's saturated into our uh, society and culture. It's 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 really sickening, but um, but yeah, so um, these fronts. Uh, were used for you know criminal purposes and the government was in on it because they've always been in on it you know the government is the upper echelon of organized crime and then above that what do you got you got the guys who run the central banks who control the secret societies who control the governments you know yeah. I don't get into the secret society stuff because to me that's just nothing more than the recruiting mechanism um, and a regional uh you know information center uh, they're all working together pretty much i mean you might and there you have factions as well but like I don't you know get off into the masons and all this stuff to me they're just varying ways of recruiting and uh seeing who you're working with you know right so right. <clears throat> um so david ferry um is very central also um uh there's a couple things i'm unclear of one thing i spent a lot of time on was get the Gavilston trip which there's so much conflicting information there i'm still having a hard time sorting it out but the nuts in both of it are that the Gavelson trip was not to go ice skating or it was not to go duck hunting or any of that stuff. The purpose of going to ice skating rinks, uh, from what I can tell, is that you can go there with teenagers and not look out of place, right? So Alvin Boboof, in one of his interviews, said that he initially met Ferry at um, a skating rink, right? And skating rinks uh, come up pretty frequently in the questioning uh, by the House Committee on Assassinations, uh, but they never really dig into why. But the skating rinks—you could go and you could, you know, you could hand kids off to another uh, to another person there and not look out of place. You know, um, those were places that—you um, know—there aren't many places you can go with kids and not look out of place, right? Uh, if you don't look like a parent, so that was a good right. cover for swapping out kids, and they were definitely involved in child sex trafficking. Um All these guys who are seemingly in on it, like um, uh, Boboof and all these other guys, um, Breck Wall, uh, they all seem like they were recruited at very young ages. 14, 15 were in the civil Air patrol, and then they go on to uh, you know assist on a lower level with the Kennedy assassination. There's, you know, and that just kind of tells me that there's some of this weird MK Ultra stuff going on, you know because Ferry was a hypnotist and there were at least three different hypnotists who uh, worked at the Carousel Club doing a show. You know, all that's all that's uh, there were tons of books on hypnotism uh, at David Ferry's apartment when he died, you know, so all this stuff connects here. Um, But uh, the Gavelson trip has really been a kind of thorn on my side because fundamentally what happened was uh, people who were involved in the assassination got driven down. Uh, allegedly by Breck Wall, but his con- his testimony is confusing and his times are not right, so it might not have been him. It might have been somebody who was using his name, or you know, the phone call from Jack Ruby to Gavelston. I don't think that was real. I think Jack Ruby was already in Gavelston. Um, so the 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 run from David Ferry from New Orleans, and he makes a bunch of stops in like Vinton and a couple other places along the way. Um, this, I believe, was just to shuffle people around, people who were involved in the assassination who needed to. Uh, get out of Dallas. Uh, I believe Jack Ruby was in Galveston and needed a ride back. We already talked about this before on the phone. Like there, It was a Jack Ruby double. The, the person who was photographed at the Dallas uh, Police Department in the hallway, who everyone says is Jack Ruby, is definitely not Jack Ruby. Um, I just started to look into Oswald's shooting uh, this week, and there's a really good chance that it wasn't even Jack Ruby who pulled the trigger on Oswald. Uh, so you had a Jack Ruby double around, and maybe there was a swap. You know, Maybe they had to bring... Uh, that guy left Dallas and they brought Jack Ruby back to Dallas on the way, on the way home, you know, but that was a person shuffling thing. And I don't even believe that um, Alvin Boboof and Melvin Coffey were even on the trip to uh, Galveston. Um, I think he went there. He, he says he left there with two people. um, But I believe more he went and picked two people up and brought them back to New Orleans, and their descriptions look identical to these guys. Like If you look at every single one of these guys that they had recruited, uh, was in the Civil Air Patrol, they're all very, they're they're kind of, they're very thin, they weigh like 130 to 150 pounds, brown hair, all the same features, and you could very easily have a witness give a description of somebody, and it just matches the person who they said they were with when they really weren't. So, lots of spycraft stuff going on there. I can tell you that Robert McEwen, aka Thomas J. McKenna, was In Dallas um, on the 22nd of November. Um, I haven't figured out exactly what his role is because I only found one reference in one FBI report that a witness claims they saw him in a car with another individual. Um, I'm still trying to track that down. Some of this stuff is buried so deep it's hard to to really find, but that's pretty much what I think happened in Galveston. You know, um, one thing I can't figure it out is they made a stop at uh, David Ferry said they made a stop at the Man Space Station, uh, and they looked around there, but they were there at like eleven o'clock at night. Like that doesn't make sense. Um, now there is I've read a couple of references that Melvin Coffee is actually the alias for Michael Payne. Uh, a witness had come forward and given testimony that he had worked at some. Uh, some kind of engineering place that was connected to the government and that he knew Michael Payne as Melvin Coffee so or uh, something like Charles Melvin Coffee <clears throat> so um, maybe the stop at the man's space station had something to do with Michael Payne who was working for basically Bell Helicopter uh, he was the, he was the stepson of the founder of Bell Helicopter Um, and if people didn't realize the only reasons we were in Vietnam were for heroin and helicopter sales, pretty much it's called the war of helicopters and heroin. Um, and Michael Payne was right in the middle of it. So, um, but yeah, there's a lot of questions I still have about Galveston and who switched when and where there was a blonde woman, uh, that was seen with them at the hotel in Galveston. Um, so that I still need to do a ton of research on. Um and th- that trip is directly connected to uh, assassins or people who were part of the assassination team leaving Dallas because basically you've got at least seven eight people with rifles in Dallas but you've only got three or four shooters not all of them shot you have two shooters on the knoll one of them didn't shoot um so you have way more people who were involved who needed to get out than there were actually shooters so it's. Uh, it, it can be a, a little difficult in deciphering which of the guys shot and which didn't. I mean, because in Daily Plaza, we had, you know, Dave Yaris, Lenny Patrick, uh, Milwaukee Phil. You, and, the, the, the you know, the proof of the connections here is Marshall Caifano connected to Richard Kane. And then you've got Jim Braden. Um, so you've got right there five, <clears throat> five, six guys. <clears throat> and, you know, who knows what their positions were. You know, but they were definitely there on the hit team in in Dallas that day. Um, so I'm still working on deciphering locations, who was where, because then you've got Sergio Cacha Smith and you've got Emilio Santana who were there also in Dealey Plaza. Um, <clears throat> uh, real quick,
1: Mr. X, let me let me just insert real quick a mafia tie with um, David Ferry, alleged by Frank the Irishman Sheeran. In the new Charles Brandt book, I Heard You Paint Houses, it's going to be a Netflix movie soon. This is allegedly about the guy who killed Jimmy Hoffa and disposed of his body. And the author of the book was interviewing um, Frank Sheeran, and they basically told him, I'm not going anywhere near Dallas, Frank said to me in 1991. And, uh, but later, a couple years later, after um, certain people had passed away, you know, there's it was alleged that um, he spoke about uh, picking up a bag of rifles for Dallas from Tony Pro right. at the Genovese Hangout, Monty's Restaurant in <clears throat> Brooklyn, and taken down to David Ferry. And, uh, you know, of course, we've all heard about the Carlos Marcello um, jailhouse tapes, you know, as, as far as him having a role in Dallas, you know, Um but it's just an inter- interesting, you know, thing that we've got, you know, the mafia possibly with, with you know, running these rifles down to, to Ferry, who then, you know, makes this trip.
2: Yes, yes. Um, this is kind of key also. There's a, this connects to a couple things. things. Um, so you have Russell Buffalino, who I don't remember if he was New York or Pennsylvania. He might have been Pennsylvania. Russell Buffalino was a boss. Yeah, he was Philly. Philly. Yeah. Okay. So he's in tight with, um, Angelo Bruno who, man, I've got some theories on Angelo Bruno in this. So we're not gonna have time to cover it today, but Angelo Bruno seems to not be necessarily central or key, but definitely, uh, in, in the loop here. Um, but you got Russell Buffalino calls up, um, uh, Tony pro Tony Provenzano, Tony Provenzano tells him go up to, um, Go, up to, go meet with our friend in New Jersey. Now, the friend in New Jersey will be key. I'm still trying to figure out who the friend in New Jersey is. There's a couple people it could be. Uh, potentially, uh, Angelo DiCarlo is a, the top hitman guy up there, and he was a lot... He, he had coordinated a lot of stuff with weapons. So... Uh, he says, go meet with our friend in New Jersey, pick up the bag of rifles. He goes picks up the bag of rifles, uh, he goes and he meets with Frank Sheeran, Frank Sheeran takes the rifles and he uh, meets up with David Ferry in Baltimore. Now these rifles were replacement rifles. The original set of rifles, um, which is a little bit more uh, connected to Jimmy Hoffa directly, um, my knowledge on this incident I'm going to describe is, is not where it should be, I, I just know the basics. So. Um, there was a, there were two guys in jail at the time that all this happened in Dallas. And uh, I think you can read about it. And I don't know, maybe it's the fourth tramp or one of those articles, but, um, there were two guys in the Thunderbird who had already had rifles, uh, that they were moving from up there down to Dallas. And I guess, uh, they got in a police chase, crashed the car. And uh the car and the rifles were all seized, so they had to send replacement rifles um, that's where the uh, Frank Sheer and Tony Provenzano uh, story comes in. But these guys were in jail, and if you read I think it was the fourth tramp he talks they talk about in it one of the guys with a smashed up face, and that was the driver of the car that wrecked in Dallas that had the initial guns so um, also
1: also in the book Oswald talked Oswald talked that's right, yeah yeah
2: so. It's kind of it's kind of amazing those guys happen to be in jail at the same time that um that the Kennedy assassination went down. So we've got the uh you know the rifles uh tracked through the th- up really up to Russell Buffalino and whoever the friend in New Jersey is. Um and um let me see. From
1: there Hmm. I thought it was alleged he dropped him in Baltimore to a ferry.
2: Yeah. And Ferry flew him back to wherever, assuming Dallas. Ferry did a lot of weird flights. Um, uh, you know, witnesses had seen him in, uh, Houston the week before witnesses saw Jack Ruby in Houston the week before. Houston was really crucial. It was kind of like a center of the Texas oil business. You know, George Bush and like all of his oil buddies, you know, most of them lived down in Houston, not Dallas. Um, Houston and Galveston really become very, very important, uh, in figuring out what happened and seeing some of the connections. Uh, in the Kennedy assassination, so but yeah, the mob involvement is like it—it it, it can't be disputed um, because you know so many people were like, "Oh, the mob couldn't do it; they couldn't get the CIA to you know or the FBI to overlook stuff, and they couldn't have put the Warren Commission together." Yeah, I mean, this is all one big organization we're talking about. It's always been one big organization, and there's just tiers of control, right? Yeah, and, and, the, uh, and
1: the FBI overlooked the mafia for how many years and didn't? Do yeah, that? yeah. I mean, and
2: uh, well, they had blackmail on, um, on Hoover, you know, because him and Tolson right. were lovers for like 50 years, and everybody knew it, but nobody wanted to mess with him because he was kind of the man. He could send the whole federal government after you, you know. So there was a balance of power, and that's how the balance of power in the world is maintained today. I mean, you really think Vladimir Putin doesn't know who did 9/11? Um, I mean, like this is all tools that they use in their in in their uh, manipulation games, right? So not much has really changed. But um. Uh, where to from here? What, what do you want to move on to next?
1: Well, let's let's move on to Dallas a little bit. I want to get into what originally sparked you to contact me, and let's talk a little bit about Larry Crayford. Um I don't sure. know if you got a chance to read a little bit of that article that I sent you.
2: Um, I, you know, I had a chance to skim it, but I get I have a little ADD, and I get so distracted I'll start reading an article, and next thing you know, I'm like ten web pages away from it, and I'm like, "How did yeah. I get up
1: here?" You know? Yeah. <laughs> we just got into a little bit about you know Larry Crayford's ties with the mafia on the on the west coast and and how he kind of moved and was or or was, was maneuvered uh into into place in Dallas and just happened to meet up with Jack Ruby and this that and the other and was probably um the reason for a lot of these misidentified Lee Harvey Oswald sightings in Dallas
2: <clears throat> yeah, the, the 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 misidentified Lee Harvey Oswald sightings really kind of perplexed me cuz none of these other guys look like him. You know, they look similar, um but that's when I started really discerning the language in these uh FBI reports. You know, because uh, some people will outright say they saw Oswald and other witnesses will say they saw someone who looked similar to Oswald, right? So um, I'm kind of being a little more discerning on how I interpret the actual writing because before I used to just think oh, Oswald was everywhere, but he obviously was not. But um, Larry Crawford is an interesting guy. I mean he was in the military, and that's like the recruiting point for CIA. So he got – it was definitely CIA. Um, one of the funniest things I have read yet was during the Warren Commission, um, he was – Larry Crawford was asked, um, what did you do in the Marines? And he goes, oh, I was an expert. Uh, I was a master sniper. And the next question they asked was, "What kind of entertainment did they have at the club?" <laughs> I thought it was like the best deflection I've ever seen, um, because if you're you know investigating the assassination of a president with a rifle and your witness just tells you that he's a master sniper and you completely ignore the question, then I think that is very telling in
1: and of itself. so yeah. <clears throat> but well, right, Crawford- real quick real quick, Mr. Eck. I determined that that quote is actually attributed to author and comedian Mort Saul. And was was said to make a point as to how ridiculous the Warren Commission was. That Crayford didn't actually say that, so I don't want to put it in. Oh, I thought I, thought I cut it right. It.
2: I thought I cut it right from the uh, um, from yeah. his testimony.
1: No, no, it, it's it, it's it's qu- attributed to him even on the education site. It's attributed to him, but it's not. It's actually something Mort Saul said in a speech or or a talk that he was given as to how ridiculous the Warren Commission was. Um, but, yeah. It, That's it's, interesting.
2: That's interesting because yeah, I would have swore I took it right from the testimony. I'll have to double yeah, no, back on that
1: one. Because Crafer Kray- was actually in the Army. Uh, he was stationed in Germany at the same time that General Walker was doing his white right-wing propaganda and stuff over there. And he allegedly, at least from the article that, that Peter Whitney wrote, um, sent on several secret missions, whatever that means, and he was injured uh, uh, in his leg and of course he has a scar on his face. Um but they didn't exactly say what he was doing over
2: there. Interesting. Interesting. Well um <clears throat> the one thing that I think really connects him to the Tippit shooting and to all this is the jacket that was found um yes. in the back parking lot of the um abundant life temple. No. Um there you know th- I think that's the one thing that really links him to it because inside the jacket was the uh dry cleaning tag and that dry cleaning tag, it was traced back to um, Earl Ruby's uh, dry cleaning facility that he had in Detroit. And the very next day, where did Larry Crawford disappear to? He went back to Detroit the day after the assassination, um, as did, well, at, um, and at the time, Earl Ruby um, was uh, in Detroit. And so,
1: well, he um, went I back have... to Michigan. Hey. He had a sister or something to that effect in Michigan. I'm not sure if it was actually in Detroit or not. I would have to double check. It's that, been a Well, while the, well been, when but, I say
2: Detroit, that's, that was where their home base was because that was, the, that was where the, the, the mafia was. They, he was part of – he was associated with the Detroit mafia, and um, he might have lived you know outside of Detroit or whatever, but it was all part of that Detroit mafia organization. Um, right, right. And uh, so, like, we had a conversation about George Senator because George Senator, there's something is wrong with uh, with everything connected to George Senator. Um, I don't believe George Senator's his real name. His father's real name was Schumacher, um, and there are conflicting picture descriptions out there from the National Archives. Uh, and there are a couple pictures where the person who looks like George Senator is described as is named Earl Ruby. But then there's another Earl Ruby who's named Earl Ruby, all in the National Archives. So um, they right. do, you know, they do this alias swapping. Like that's another thing I don't think most people realize is that all the aliases that people hear are names of real people that these guys know um, and can prep when the cops come to talk to them. I've found at least three or four incidents of this uh, in my JFK research. But yeah, these guys are all using shared names. They're not just making names up out of the blue. Um,
1: yeah. It was- and- much easier back then to create a false identity than it is now. Yep. You know, I mean, all you needed was, well, I mean, Lee Harvey Oswald did it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. It wasn't that hard to do. I and, think the
2: most uh, the most well-known example is like the Jean Souetra, Michael Mertz, uh, you know, Michael Rue um, through the triple alias in rotation thing, you know, because, um, right. uh, yeah, they, they, there was no French hitman or French assassin. That's all play on words because all these guys were connected to France because of the, the French connection, heroin trafficking. And so the the, the claims of a French uh, assassin is really just play on words because all these guys had been, uh, a lot of them are shared assets and they get sent overseas to do hits too. And so and they're all connected to France in one way, shape or form, right? Because of this heroin network. So yeah, there's no French assassin. That was just, um, you know, that was uh, some literary um, kind of embellishment by <laughs> whoever started that that rumor.
1: Yeah, and one more thing to add too about about the jacket I mentioned, yeah, you know, with the dry clean tag, that that garment, that jacket was actually made in California, which is where um Larry Craper spent a bit of his time where he was allegedly allegedly working with the San Francisco mafia and was forced to leave town and he kind of worked some odd jobs on his way down through California before eventually making his way, you know, to Dallas. So and I understand, okay, Lee Harvey Oswald spent some time in California, you know, before being sent over to Asugi, and this, that, and the other. But, you know, it, I think why would he, he wouldn't have bought went out and bought a civilian jacket while in the Marine Corps. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I yep. think that that doesn't make any sense to me it more than likely was Crayford's jacket. And we can point to the the label made in California by a certain maker. You know, we can point to the dry cleaner tags and see the associations there. And, you know, we even have photos of Larry Crayford wearing almost an exact same style Eisenhower type short waisted jacket um, from the FBI photos that we have of him. Um, You know, Oswald is, never attributed to wearing that type of jacket or even being seen in that type of jacket.
2: Yep. Um, And I've actually located two photos out of all of the um, Daily Plaza and the railroad track photos. I have located two photos. Actually, one of them wasn't from a photo. One of them was from a video clip that was like four seconds long and I screenshotted it. But I found a guy who, you can't see his face, but he looks exactly like um, Larry Crawford wearing that jacket walking down the knoll. I found uh, one uh, from behind the knoll, and I found one as he's walking down the knoll, and there's a huge crowd of people there, right? I just happened to notice that the jacket that I was – I was investigating the jacket, and when I saw that picture, I was like, wow, that looks exactly like the same jacket. So I'm, I'm, I might be able to in uh, the next couple of weeks like, discern whether – or not that actually was him that I found in the photographs. But but yeah, so – so to kind of move on to Tippett a little bit and his involvement with Tippett. I'm I'm pretty sure that he was uh the Oswald double who shot Tippett and then fled um now one aspect that most people don't really realize is that you know they say oswald dropped the jacket at uh, and it was in the parking lot of a gas station well that's only like partially true because that parking lot backed up to the abundant life temple which people uh, uh, kind of addresses the abundant life church which it was at one point it's been several things over the years but at the time um it was a temple uh it was a jewish temple and i believe that it was um, a safe house. I think it was a safe house that uh, could be utilized. So now I've come into some conflicting information in regards to that because you've got whoever it was um, who made it a point to be seen at the shoe store and walking down the street. It definitely was not Oswald. Oswald was in the theater by one oh seven p.m. Um, as per the guy who was working the concession stand because he knew the movie started at like one ten and he knew that Oswald had walked in you know, before the movie started. So Basically, you got Oswald. Uh, from what I can tell, Oswald was driven to the theater almost directly from Dealey Plaza, driven by a guy named Daryl Click, whose real identity is Bo Click. He was a Marine, a sharpshooter, uh, and he died in a mysterious plane crash in 1967. But no one ever talks about Beauclick. It's That's some like Red Belt level stuff. You know, so uh, Bo Click, I'm, I'm still doing research. There's two different families of cliques in Dallas who are connected to the assassination, and I can't seem to connect the two families of cliques together. Uh, the genealogy records and all the Find a Grave stuff is very inconclusive. Um, but, you know, you've got Bernice Click, who was visited by Jack Ruby, um, and you've got a bunch of people who are somehow associated with each other through these clicks in the assassination, this is just more of like the, you know, the, the fine details. This doesn't really have much implication on the bigger picture, but. um
1: Yeah. uh Daryl Click was mentioned by the. uh
2: Yeah. Well, I think Daryl Click is Bo Click because his name was uh Travy, T-R-A-V-Y, Delano Click. And his nickname was Bo Click. But none of these guys, you know, when these guys do mob stuff or they do CIA stuff, they get a, you know they have a, a an operating name uh, which they go by, and yeah. Daryl Click might have been his operating name.
1: Yeah, because he was um, he was mentioned as the original cab driver for
2: Oswald, right.
1: and then that's very quickly shifted to William Wally.
2: Right, right, who, and which well, and see, I don't even an know who got, got into William, as well. <laughs> I don't even know who got into William uh, Wally's cl- uh, cab because you know he described him as wearing two jackets. You know what I mean? And his yeah. shirt had like a silver stripe on it, so it definitely wasn't Oswald. I don't really know if that was crayford or not um i don't know why crayford wouldn't have been driven i don't see why he had to take public transportation you know um so there's some conflicting info there but we know that there was we know that whaley was not the cab driver because uh i believe curry he in two different instances used two different references to Bo click and one he called him Bo click and later said he said oak cliff which he did not um and then at another time he named him daryl click right so he made two specific references to uh to Bo Click, and so therefore, and the manner in which he said it told me that he was familiar with him, like he was like a you know one of the Dallas hoodlums or something like that, right? So just the way that he talked about him gave me the impression that he was already familiar with him. But I have not seen other than on a couple forums anybody attempt to dive into who Darrow Click or Bo Click or Trevy Click actually was. Um, his father's name was Malachi Click, and he died in 1962. Uh, for a while, I thought there was a connection there, but I can't seem to make one. A lot of these things just end in dead ends. I mean, it's just, unless you're going to be pulling like, you know, 10 generations of family records, a lot of this stuff is just hard to come across. And you really just got to cross reference using like known descriptions, um, from various incidents and various people, and then try to overlap those, uh, descriptions with identities and then overlap those identities with known aliases. I mean, Mm -hmm. this thing was a absolute masterpiece of spy craft and, you know, obfuscation. Um, really, it's, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, the, the, the amount of tricks that all these guys had uh, that they were employing to, to, to stay out of the, the narrative, you know?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Very interesting stuff. And, and, you know, you even made mention that, and it's something that is, that I've heard before. And I've, I even did a show on it too, as well, you know, was, Was Lee, quote, Lee Harvey Oswald even staying at 1026 uh, Beckley, or was it Crayford, or was it another lookalike?
2: Yeah, I looked into that briefly. Um, I still have a little bit more digging to do, but uh, I don't believe that Oswald ever stayed at 1026 North Beckley. Um, So everyone says O.H. Lee was there, but that's not correct either. Um, What you had was an H. Lee, uh, Herbert Lee, Herbert Leon Lee, um, who was staying in room O. Uh, and he was a very real person. Uh, there is some conflicting information on times he stayed there. Did he overlap with Oswald? Uh, there was another guy. I forget his name. Maybe – I don't think it was John Carter. Uh, it might have been. Was, he had another guy who was staying there at the same time. And with the times that he said he was staying there I think has been shown to be false and that he was staying there at the same time as Oswald. So 1026 uh, North Beckley. Um, you know, you've know, you got Earlene Roberts. And Earlene Roberts' sister – was uh, Bertha Cheek, who was also involved in this in some weird way with Jack Ruby. So basically it seems like that was like a kind of a mafia, CIA um, kind of safe house. Like people could stay there. And yeah, it was exactly what it was. Um, And if I'm not mistaken, I think I don't remember. I get my cheeks and my clicks mixed mixed up. But uh, (laughs) one of them had rented to like a bunch of Cubans like in the months before um, the assassination. So like these, yeah, these places are safe houses, right? 1026 North Beckley. And what's the other one? Um, that was run by, uh, Mary Bledsoe. Mary Bledsoe and the whole bus incident was a big old fabrication. Um, oh, yeah. like when I really got into that, like the thing that tipped it off for me was that freaking bus transfer was in mint condition, right? Like yeah. they ripped his buttons off his shirt. And he, you know, ripped a hole in his arm, but yet the, Bus transfer came out with a single crease on the back. Give yeah. me a break! And then the yeah. fact that the, the whole book of transfers disappeared. Um, yeah, it's just insane. Um, and yeah, there's this something to Cecil McWaters too. Cecil McWaters is, is somehow connected to the Clicks um, and Jack Ruby, and like all, everyone in place is connected to somebody. And like when you explain this stuff, and everyone's like, "Well, everyone couldn't have been in on it." Like, no, this was scripted like a Hollywood movie. You know, this is what psychological warfare does. Um, psych warfare and basic. This was like all fall under George Joannidis of the CIA at the JM Wave Station. Um, later in later years, he be, he became the propaganda guy for the CIA. But um, when, you know, in thinking about it and seeing how specific a lot of these encounters were that you come across in Kennedy, um, it was like there's no way that this stuff could have all been coincidental and happened at the same time. But all it takes is one guy to write a script and a couple guys to tell their people where to be and what to do. And you've got a Hollywood production that plays out just like Kennedy played out, you know? Yeah. Um, and, even, and even
1: if these people don't realize their, their part in it, per se, you know, or w- maybe even if they, if they did realize it later, I mean, they, yeah, they the, knew a lot of these guys were pawns. Their, keep their they, mouth shut, they, you know? Yeah, yeah.
2: Like you don't ask questions. When you're in the CIA or the mob, you don't ask questions. You do what you're told, or there yeah. are, you know, you have a mysterious car accident. <laughs> this is kind of how yep. it
1: goes. <laughs> yep.
2: So, um, so yeah. As far as tip goes, it definitely wasn't Oswald. Oswald was in the theater already. Um, now, the, the the things that I'm unsure of um, are what were um, Emilia Santana and Sergio Arcacha Smith doing after the assassination? Because um, I believe that they ended up on a plane, got down to Mexico City, and then made their way to Cuba. Um, or stayed in Mexico City. There's a lot of things that happened. There's a lot of uh, conflicting information on the Mexico City flights after the assassination. But you had you have stories of a private plane flying into Mexico City, a person getting off the plane, uh, getting onto uh, the Cubana Airlines flight, and then basically going right to the cockpit and staying in the cockpit the whole time until it got to Cuba, um, and hiding out the whole time, never left the, the cockpit. And right. they they bypassed all the security, everything. Just got off one plane, got on another plane, and the plane took
1: off. Because the um, original plan, at least according to Marina, was that Oswald wanted to hijack a Cubana Airlines flight to Cuba after the assassination or something to that effect.
2: Right, right. And then you know, years later, there actually was a bombing of a Cubana Airlines by Orlando Bosch. Um, right. He ended up blowing one up. Like I forget what year that was, but – um, but yeah, so you have a couple different stories here. You have the story of the one person getting on the plane and hiding in the cockpit. Then you have another story of two, quote, gangland types uh, that flew from Mexico City to um, to Cuba also. But I think there's some little disinformation there. I don't think if it was Sergio Acacia Smith and uh, Emilio Santana, they sure as hell were not going to Cuba. Um, right. They probably hu- hid out in uh, Mexico City for a while. Um, but then you have uh, Gilberto Lopez, right? Gilberto Lopez crossed the border into Mexico at like Brownsville or one of those cities on the border. Um, and he had been connected to the Fair Play for Cuba committee and basically made had made statements in a previous meeting of the Fair Play for Cuba committee about uh, the president being assassinated and all this stuff. And he just coincidentally crosses the border um, that day. Um you know, here's a little side story, and I wish I could remember the guy's name. This is this is fascinating. Another person crossed the border into Texas after the assassination, and uh, I'm gonna have to look this up and talk about it on another show. But basically, this guy went on to be like the head of the Flower Child movement in San Francisco, and credited with like putting on the first concerts for like the Grateful Dead and all this stuff uh, in the 1960s. A big, big, big time, like, uh, hippie guy. But I found out he was also connected to MKUltra and the CIA, and he fled into Mexico after the assassination. So there's some really weird, interesting – that's totally side note, you know, probably irrelevant, but that was just another weird connection I found. Was,
1: was it Ken Kesey?
2: No, it wasn't Ken Kesey. Man, if I heard the name, uh, it's probably in my notes somewhere. Uh, I'll, have to, I'll have to look at it. But it's in the – if you look at the FBI JFK files, it's broken into 16 – uh, 2000 page files. It's in the first file of the, uh, of the 16. Interesting. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I'll have to, I'll pull that information out and I'll get it to you. But, but yeah, so you had a bunch of people getting down to Mexico, but then you have a bunch of people who, you know, you had um, Crawford go to Detroit. And in my opinion, you had the probably the real George Senator who was probably always in New York the whole time, or it was Earl Ruby. Uh, and he went back to Detroit also. Right. So you've got right. the movement to Detroit there. Um, Then you've got the interesting case of uh, David Leon Miller and his brother Isidore Max Miller. That's a pretty fascinating story. I haven't gotten to the bottom of that one yet. But based on all the descriptions and the connections to other mob guys, I'm convinced that David Leon Miller is uh, Dave Yaris, and that Isidore Max Miller is actually Lenny Patrick. So these two guys were living in uh, a—they were living in a house that I believe— the landlord was connected to Oswald. It was either like uh, um, it was either um, Roberts, Erlene Roberts, or her sister. But somebody had a uh, um, somebody was renting to these guys, and these guys were in the Carousel Club all the time. And um, I'm convinced that these two guys were Dave Yaris and uh, Lenny Patrick. Um, so you know you have the phone call the night before to Robert Bernard Baker um in Chicago and then Baker calls Yaris and then Yaris calls Patrick and uh this was all in my opinion all uh, obfuscation those guys were in Dealey Plaza uh, including uh Robert Baker and those were alibi phone calls cuz if you go back and look at these guys history these guys have been busted by doing dumb shit with phones you know that's why they always were right. going to pay phones up the road they knew the deal they knew the deal they they set themselves an alibi by by, by that that chain of calls that happened
1: yeah, they knew phone records could be pulled and there you go. What better way to place yourself somewhere than to make a call from there?
2: Right. And now let's 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 go back to the mob Israel connection. So now you've got Jack Ruby definitely worked with the Mossad before they were the Mossad. You know, he was working with Israeli interests um through like um uh Herman Greenspan and a bunch of these other guys, manish and Begin directly. And so you got Jack Ruby working with pre Israeli Jews, and then you have uh, Dave Yaris and Lenny Patrick, who were both Jewish, Jewish, who had changed their names to sound more uh, American. Um, and these guys, while yes, they were mobsters and loyal to their chain of command, they always felt uh, compelled to participate in pro-Israel things. I mean, Lenny Patrick and Dave Yaris uh, had both flown to Israel numerous times um, in the years leading up to the Kennedy assassination. They had connections directly over there, so uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they were even, uh, you know, the shared assets that were you know, used as hitmen over there. Um, it would make perfect sense. I mean, when you look at the OAS in France, like all the guys that they were getting hired were all military and they were all involved in the French mafia, right? So it's, it's I don't think it'd be any different. The mafia here connected to the intelligence and go- communities and the governments. Uh, I think it's just the same thing. And we would probably send people all over the world uh, at the time using mafia guys to do it. The Jewish mafia guys in particular. You know, so that was very important to um Menish and Begin and these guys that they had like quote their own people, you know, uh, uh implementing these things so as to keep it uh, a small circle because they kind of saw it as all Jews are loyal to each other. That's that was like kind of uh their their thing, really. But it's not the Jews, you know, as we know now, it's Zionists, not not Jews. So
1: Right. Also interesting to note, you know, Jack Ruby after after was caught, you know. Very, he was very worried about how people would view the Jewish people because you know he was Jewish and he did what he did. Yeah, and he almost
2: gave it away by saying it so many yeah. times. You know what I mean? It was kind of uh,
1: kind he of went like back to the, the whole that. Jewish thing a lot. You know, especially when he was questioned by Earl mm-hmm. Warren. You know, and in various statements made to the press, you know, he was very concerned about how Jewish people in in general and Jewish Americans would be viewed in light of what he had done, you know? So it, it you know, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, see, Jack Ruby seemed so mysterious to a lot of
2: people because, yes, he was working with the mob, but he wasn't a made guy because he wasn't Italian. Um, Jack Ruby is actually connected to the white Russians. I mean, he really technically is a white Russian. He uh, his, his. I think he, he says he was born in the U.S., but uh, there's a chance that he wasn't. Um, he might have been born... Um, over in the Ukraine or – I, I forget where I read, but his dad was definitely Russian. He was a Russian Jew connected to the white Russians. So right. that's another connection between like him and DeMorn Shield in Dallas, right? Um, me personally, I despise identitarian politics at all. Like, identitarian politics have screwed up the world more than anything else, period. We're all one people. We got to live with each other. Like, to me, I don't have any – I don't see any difference between us. Really, I don't. But, like, a lot of people – they have this pride in their heritage and things like race or whatever, and to me, that's the, one of the bigger problems that we face in the world is that people can't get over this kind of stuff. And the loyalties that some of these groups uh, kind of uh, command to some degree is like, you know, it, it prevents us from really all being able to get along. And that's that's uh, an unfortunate truth of the situation. But there was a lot of loyalty by Jack Ruby, especially to Judaism and to other people who had fled Europe um, at the time. Uh, from the Nazis, so um, he was definitely uh, into uh, the smuggling of Jews to Galveston after the war, or actually during the war. Um, yeah, so his political, you know, people say that Jack Ruby was overly political. Uh, that might have been true on one level, but on other on other levels, he was deeply involved um, with political stuff.
1: Oh yeah, and worried about it too. So let's let's go back to Dealey Plaza, because I know you wanted to get into the identifications of, of the folks in Dealey Plaza, like dark-complected man, umbrella man, and, and other people seen around there that you've identified?
2: Um, sure. Um, so, really, the one I think is the most important is Larry Floor. Um, I believe Larry Floor is Ted Shackley. Uh, now, people I've read on forums, people I will give the whole history of Larry Floor, and they are correct in what they say. However, they don't realize the shared asset, the, the shared alias kind of uh, uh, modus operandi that these guys utilize. If you look at a picture of Ted Shackley circa 1960 to 1965, that looks exactly like Larry floor Now, how did Larry Floor give himself away? It is one way that I haven't seen anybody else pick up on, but Larry floor said that he, when he was interviewed, he said that he was uh, at lunch with a guy named Richard Bartholomew, um, who I really can't find anything on, and that he had heard about the assassination and was just a couple blocks away and he walked to Daly Plaza. Um, the problem with his story is that uh, his employer, uh, he gave his SL Ewing company, which is definitely a CIA front company. If you look into SL Ewing, um, and then you look into who SL Ewing was, it's, they seem to have nothing to do with each other and there's weird shit going on there. So he gave his work phone number as you know, whatever phone number it was, and as I was cross-referencing phone numbers, one other person gave that phone number, and the one person who gave that phone number as their own phone number is a guy named Louis Shug, S C H U G. There is not one word about Larry uh, about um, Louis Shug on any document, not FBI, not CIA, nothing. This guy is the ghost of the entire uh, assassination. There is nothing on this guy. And I've been looking. I can't find a reference. I found people on forums going, who the hell is this guy? And that is it. He gave the same phone number as his phone number, the phone number to the SL Ewing company. So that tells me right away that um, he is somehow connected to Larry Floor since they're giving the same work phone number. Um, But that kind of confirms my suspicions that SL Ewing was uh, intelligence. Um, And that also tells me that Larry Floor is not Larry Floor. And if he's not Larry Floor and he looks like Ted Shackley, it's Ted Shackley. Um, there are also pictures in Dealey Plaza that look like um,
1: uh, George. And holy Dias. shit. I, I, I just Googled pictures of Ted Shackley and, and Larry Floor. Mm-hmm. They, God damn, they do look alike.
2: That's the same guy. Yeah. Um, the ages seem off, but Ted Shackley was a, was a, he looked young. He maintained his youthful appearance. Um, and, uh, you know, We talked about Ted Shackley and Reinhard Galen and all the shit that he did. Ted Shackley was like – he was so central in creating the the you know, security state that we live in today. Um, and his story doesn't make sense. And look at what he's wearing underneath his long jacket. Yeah.
1: He's, jacket. Wearing,
2: he's wearing a plaid jacket. Um, so if I had to if – if someone put me on the spot and had told me call it right now, I'd say that Ted Shackley was the number two shooter on the grassy knoll. Uh, but he did not fire a shot. I believe the other man on the knoll fired the shot, but Ted Shackley was there. You see, because when Larry Floor got busted, he got busted coming out of the Daltex building, which I'm convinced there was a there was a a, a cutout in the Daltex building. There was oh, a, yeah. there was a, a
1: um, in there, there yeah. was
2: some place that they can go and hide out until they got a signal that it was all clear or something Agreed. like that, right? So, yep. um, and so you've got these witnesses up in the Daltex building who see Larry Floor downstairs I mean, out of the building, and they see a cop, and they start banging on the window. And they point out to the cop, they're pointing it at Larry Flora. And that's when Larry Flora goes and gets picked up. Um, and wasn't
1: he acting drunk? Was that the one?
2: Yeah. Yep, he was acting yeah. drunk. And if you notice, there's about three or four guys who are stopped in Daly Plaza and they're all drunk. That's more Spycraft stuff. Oh, we couldn't have done it. He was drunk. No, they'll shoot the guy and then, you know, slam, you know, six, seven shots worth of alcohol. And uh, it'll be heavily fresh on their breath. Heavily. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, the, the getting drunk stuff is uh, definitely some spy craft. Anybody who you read about in Daily Plaza who was drunk, they were in on it. Um, so I, know, I found another reference, and this is the one reference that I'm trying to corroborate and find more evidence on it. But somebody had contacted the Dallas Police Department in reference to uh, this talk of a, a second suspect, like a serious second suspect. And while most of the stories about Larry Flores say he was released later that day, I found one reference that said he was kept in jail for over three weeks and that he was the um, the second suspect that they held on to. But this was like – you know, it would have been like week, two and a half weeks after Oswald was killed, and I think they were digging hard to find out what this guy was doing because – and the story of what he actually did, and you know, nobody knows. All they, know, all we know is he got arrested because he tried to go find a phone in the Daltex building. But what the witnesses who were banging on the glass and got the cops' attention—they must have told them something very different. Um, and who knows what that was? But um, yeah. So based on the totality of circumstance, I'm convinced that that's Ted Shackley. And if Ted, and remember, because uh, all these guys—I believe all those guys were in Daly Plaza. I believe um, well, Bill Harvey was there because Bill Harvey was stationed over in Italy. And um, I think a couple of days before the assassination, uh, he was going out of town. One of his associates over there said, where are you going? He's like, oh, I'm going to Dallas to see what happens. Right. You know, so you got Bill Harvey in Dallas. You've got – if you have Bill Harvey and you have Ted Shackley, and I have a photo of a guy who looks like George Joannidis, it's probably George Joannidis. And I think I've identified um, Morales in Dealey Plaza. So that, that we'll get into right now. So, um, there's a, if you look at the, um, there's a Pruder film, you will see as the car passes into, you know, into view in front of the knoll, you'll see a guy wearing an apron and you'll see him talking to another guy who is taller, heavier set, and, and darker skinned. Now, the guy who is wearing the apron, he, um, Based on a chain of uh, incidents and events and people, uh, I've been led to determine that that is most likely uh, James Licavoli. The apron man is probably James Licavoli. James Licavoli is a Cleveland mob guy. He was uh, the number two guy under John Scalish. Uh, He took over Cleveland after Scalish, uh, either went to jail or died or retired or something. But Licavoli was a brutal guy. I remember reading a quote that said, if uh, if if Licavoli tapped his cane, somebody died, and that's just how it was. And uh, you know that should kind of give you the, the the idea that he really was just he was the epitome of the Italian mobster, right? So for him to go to Daily Plaza, stand in the very front, and wear a freaking apron, that was pff, that was his way of saying "fuck you." Oh, you can cut that part out, <laughs> but that was what he was that's doing. Right. <laughs> he was he was giving the finger to Kennedy by wearing an apron there. And th- what led me to him. Um, was a guy named Leo Masseri. Leo Masseri was another Cleveland hitman. Um, he was related to Licavoli, but he, all these guys are cousins or you know whatever. So he was a cousin of Licavoli. Um, he was connected to a guy named Angelo Leonardo, who was a Cleveland, uh, uh, Cleveland mobster also. Angelo Leonardo's cousin is Frank Sinatra. And Frank Sinatra's best friend was Angelo DiCarlo up in New Jersey. And one of DiCarlo's best friends was Tony Provenzano. So you got this loop here of people who are really tight. Um, And you know the chain would seem to connect to the shipment of the rifles and Leo Masseri. Now the reason that I say Leo Masseri led me to James Licavoli as being the apron man is because um, I am about 95% confident that Leo Masseri is the old tramp. Um, The only thing that throws me off is I can't find pictures of, there's only four pictures that exist of Leo Masseri and none of, they're all booking photos. Um, and I can't, I, I have concerns over the hairline of the, uh, of the old tramp, but, um, based on what I've seen based on scarring under the eye, um, I'm, I'm 95% sure that the old tramp is Leo Masseri. Um, but I'm, you know, I will, if I am wrong, I will definitely, uh, own up to it. So, um, and if that is Leo Masseri, his boss was James Licavoli. And James Licavoli was an arrogant guy to the point where he's not gonna let everybody else have the fun and not go see this thing for himself. If you notice, and not in one document, they mentioned the guy with the apron and he's standing right there, you know? And so there is, uh, there's another, okay. So I'm gonna talk about another incident in Dealey Plaza that connects all these guys. And that is the picking up of a suspect from Dealey Plaza in the station wagon owned, allegedly owned, by Mary Farrell. Mary Farrell is a CIA disinformation agent disinformation agent who runs the Mary Farrell website. I've, I try to avoid her site at all costs unless I absolutely have to for a document. See, that's a situation where she'll flood you with documents so you don't find the right ones. That's what that's what her site does. Because 90% of the documents on her site are junk, have nothing to do with anything, rehashes of rehashes of rehashes. And so the real nuggets of information, I don't think you're gonna find there. You're gonna find those at the archives if you find them anywhere. So. But uh, her husband, Buck Farrell, is also CIA agent. Every single uh, uh, request, Freedom of Information Act request for his documents have just gotten a big no. So he's somehow oh. connected to NASA and uh, some of the things that NASA was doing. Uh, I still – that's a whole other road I need to go down at some point. But yeah, they're both hardcore CIA. She started to collect information and start uh, doing stuff the day of the assassination. Like It's really weird how that worked out. But um, oh, yeah. So her vehicle was allegedly driven by uh, General McHugh. And Chester Clifton, the other general, was the guy in the passenger seat, allegedly. And the guy in the backseat was supposed to have been the press agent, uh, Julian Reed, the press agent for, uh, uh, for Conley. So finally, after months of digging, I completely debunked that. that was, uh, so Reed was a red, R-E-A-D-E, uh, he was actually in the press bus. So it was not him getting in or out of that vehicle. And in that vehicle, I'm sorry, in that photograph, you can see that vehicle and you can see the apron man pretty clearly walking away and you see the press bus behind it. But it's th- this station wagon, um, which was a Mercury Colony station wagon, 1964, um, it, I haven't been able to corroborate it with any of the other vehicles involved, any of the other station wagons involved or ownership. I'm still working on it. I got to make like a grid chart and like just and, and tra- track all this stuff. But... Um so they all,
1: they all kind of look the same back then as you know right, station right, magnets, right. and know.
2: there's some license plate switching going on um the you know with, with the tippet shooting there's some great is a great plymouth and which came back to like uh you know Carl Weathers, who worked for Collins Radio, which was the CIA company. All like right. uh, they, they, they get out of there and they swap license plates, and not only do they swap license plates, they swap cars. A lot of the cars described that um, uh, Ruth Payne had owned she didn't own the green Rambo station wagon that was at her place was Clay Shaw's station wagon. So these guys like swap vehicles and swap license plates as part of their spycraft stuff. So th- the whole station wagon thing is is crazy. I, I'm going to have to really spend some time deciphering it, but but yeah. So you got two people in a car and they're um, and basically they're picking up a third person in the car. Now, when, if, if I am correct, it's all you know, dependent upon if I am correct about this chain of events, then if that is James Licavoli in the apron, the guy talking to him was heavyset and darker skinned, and Licavoli was a Sicilian. He had dark skin to begin with. You're like either black or dark skinned Hispanic if you're darker than him. And the guy who got into that car, if it was driven by, um, by McHugh and uh, Chester Clifton, they're not – these guys are the Joint Chiefs of Staff. These guys are the, the, the upper echelon of our military establishment. They're not stopping to pick up a nobody. They're right. not going to stop and pick up anybody unless they're up there on that level with them. And the only person that matches the description of that person who gets into the vehicle um, and who would be as Im- important enough to be picked up is David Morales. Now, that is a leap I'm taking. But I can't think of anything else that makes sense. The only other thing that would make sense is if it wasn't McHugh and it wasn't Chester Clifton in that car. But whoever it was was talking to Licavoli before they got into that station wagon. So whoever it was was connected to them and in on it on some level. And the guy's wearing a long trench coat and he's got a hat on. Um, So Basically, that vehicle was used to escort one of the conspirators out of Dealey Plaza. And whoever took that picture, I forget which series it was, whether it was Hughes or whoever, that is the most important photo in all of Dealey Plaza, right there. That one photo of the apron man walking away with this guy getting into the station wagon because the official government documentation says that that was uh, Julian Reed, And it sure as hell wasn't because Reed said he was in the press bus. Although... This is another little aside that I need to still research further. Um, I had read uh, an interview with someone I forget who it was. They weren't uh, a real big shot in government, but they said that they felt like they got uh, shafted because they got bumped to the VIP car. Him and uh, Evelyn Kennedy, or what was it, Evelyn Lincoln, who was Kennedy's like secretary. I read an interview that said that the two of them were in the VIP car, but I highly doubt. That they are stopping in Dealey Plaza to pick up a, a conspirator. You know what I mean? It was it was so far removed from anyone who had been involved that I still need to figure out if there was a second VIP car or what they were talking about. But the motorcade is all kinds of screwed
1: up. Like, well, just, and just to be clear, folks, <clears throat> this is not the Roger Craig guy getting into the Nash Rambler. This no. is something different.
2: Yes, and I don't believe that was a Nash Rambler that day. I believe it was another model. That's why people yeah, can't. Yeah, different
1: find kind it. Of station wagon. Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, he only thought it was a Nash because it had the the roof racks. But I found right. a bunch of other models that had roof racks, and there's really no good enough pictures of that station wagon to determine who that was. And see that that station wagon throws me for a loop. It really does because I can't. I can't. You have you have three people who possibly are involved in the Tippett incident or fleeing Daly Plaza. You got William Seymour. You know, if, if it was Crayford who shot Tippett, you still got um, Emilio Santana and William um, Seymour to account for. And uh, some people speculate that it was William Seymour who got arrested out of the balcony of the Texas theater and taken out the back. Right. So but that I'm still unsure. This is this is one area that I still need to, to dig deeper into. But digging deeper into this still does not affect the premise or the um, bigger picture of who gave the order, who facilitated it and who carried it out, right? So you can still figure out who did what um, and ignore some of the minutia. You know what I mean? Um yeah. the and minutia- I always
1: thought, you know, it could have been it could have been Crayford as well who was arrested out of the balcony and took him out the it out. And, it it, could and have been, but I did tur- read, turned read loose, you know.
2: But I did read somewhere that it was the next day that 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 person hid out for overnight and the next day they were picked up and driven to Galveston. So that I'm still trying to, to to correlate with everything else.
1: Yeah. Well, that would so, eliminate Crayfords. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, these are, these are interesting nuances, right? These are like, well, what was that happening there? It just, it fills in a curiosity, but it definitely doesn't impact the fact that it was the Chicago outfit pulling the triggers. Nobody else, no anti-Castro Cubans or none of that stuff. And definitely that Israel gave the order, right? So you can have the, the, you can have the, who gave the order and you can have who pulled the trigger And everything else in the middle, really, it's fascinating, it's interesting, it it plays a role to help explain the the bigger picture. But there really is enough evidence to kind of understand exactly what happened um, without the minutia, really. Um, And my, my, my associate, who I'll call Mr. Y, he ignores minutia. He made a statement to me once and he was completely correct. You can ignore every single thing that happened in Dealey Plaza that day. All of it. Don't look at one bit of it and still know who gave the order and who pulled the trigger. Um, And he's correct in saying that, you know. So it's hard not to get distracted by some of this stuff and thinking it's going to lead you to some big wow. But um, uh, really, it doesn't. It's just for filling in gaps. Um, So Mr. Y has actual documents that confirm his uh, theories of who was on the knoll and who the shooters were. I'm not there yet. I haven't found the actual documentary proof. I'm at the stage where I have deduced everything from cross-referencing documents and, and and all that investigative stuff. I was a cop for nine years. I have a lot of experience in investigations. I think a lot of people will have evidence that they don't realize is evidence. You know, I just kind of look at evidence in a, in a different way. So, um, But yeah, all this little stuff, all the little minutiae is, uh, to me, probably going to absorb a huge chunk of the rest of my life, you yeah. know? Um, yeah. And I love it. Uh, but really, it, it, none of it will change the bigger picture, uh, you know? And right. I think that's the most important thing. Understanding what's going on in our world today is paramount for everybody, or it should be. And you can't understand what's going on in the world today unless you understand Kennedy. I mean, that's, I'm 100% convinced of that. And hopefully, we're entering into a new phase of, of Kennedy awareness. Uh, hopefully, um, information in regards to Israel can continue to spread um, the in, the involvement with the, the mafia. See, because that uncovers the greater relationship between the establishment powers and the criminal underworld, which is still persisting to this day. You know, yes. it hasn't changed. So when you come to understand Kennedy, you come to understand the state of our world. Um, and that's uh, next I got to move into aliens so they can beam me up and get me the hell out of here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so well,
1: but, tell uh, them to this- when it when after they get you in and grab me <laughs> up too, I'm ready to get the hell out of here myself.
2: Yeah, yes, I mean on a serious note, I'm looking to um, uh, in a, I'm looking to make a million bucks and then uh, dip to Thailand. I got twelve years. You can retire there at fifty five and uh, live in a hut in the beach, and not have to worry about any of this
1: stuff anymore. So there you go. That sounds like a plan. <laughs> well, just 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 to rewind real quick. Speaking of minutia and Daily Plaza, get to your identity. Identification of Umbrella Man and dark-complected man because I think it's important.
2: Okay, so um, I don't want to identify the dark-complected man because I feel like I was helped, and the person who actually did the work should be credited. Perfect. Right, and so but, I'm going to have to hold off on that one. But we'll talk
1: about um, generally, generally who this guy was. Yeah, as sure. A person. Yeah,
2: sure. Um, both the Umbrella Man and the dark-complected man. Um, and the dark-complected man is not a Cuban, (laughs) okay? He's definitely not a Cuban, so people can stop calling him that. Um, They were Mossad assassination coordinators, and um, the umbrella man was a guy named Michael Harari. And Michael Harari at the time was stationed down in Panama, and Panama was ultra-important um in the global heroin trafficking that had been set up by guys like Menish and Begin um Menish and Begin and these guys these guys are real terrorists and they funded everything through narcotics money and human trafficking and weapons that's just what they did um Panama was also um directly connected to George Bush uh because that's where a lot of the cocaine at the time was coming from and a lot of money laundering was going on down there so you've got Manuel Noriega, right? And Manuel oh, Noriega's yeah. or alleged right-hand guy was Michael Harari. And Michael Harari has been connected to virtually every assassination that Mossad's ever done since the 1960s, if you do your homework on him. There is zero possibility that there was a Mossad hit in Dealey Plaza that Menachem and Yitzhak Rabin and Yitzhak Shamir were at that Michael Harari was not at. I'm really getting tired of hearing how it was Roy Hargraves and what's his name? Those guys were in Miami at the time. People can stop saying that. <laughs> so um, do your homework on Michael Harari, and You can read about Michael Horari a little bit in Michael Collins Piper's book. And the only reason I feel comfortable talking about him is because Collins Piper already um, has already brought this up. So, um, but um, the, I'll tell you this much, the dark-complected man uh, who was not a Cuban did not know Michael Horari. He just knew he would be there with another associate, But Uh, The dark-complected man goes on to play an extremely significant role in uh, covert actions around the world on behalf of the Mossad and CIA in the years after that, and he's directly connected to George Bush. So those are the only um, hints I'm going to give on him. Um, But they could potentially be key to get people to acknowledge the Israeli role because— people are looking for those guys to be like anti castro Cubans or connected to the mob. And they're not in that group. They're in a t- completely different group. You know, that's why nobody's really been able to make the connection on that. Um, and the reason they had an umbrella and a guy with a radio is because you need a physical backup. If your radio goes out, you need a guy who has some way to signal to the shooters, um, some kind of message, um, in case the radio fails. That's why you have to have two guys. Right. So that's pretty much how that worked. Um, Nobody's nobody knows who this guy is. Like nobody listening will have heard the name of the dark complected man. That one's gonna take some homework. Right, but I would right. start I would start in Panama with George Bush and Michael Harari, and that might lead you there.
1: Gotcha. Now <clears throat> have you looked at all? I mean, we've talked about I mean, he's kind of the the godfather of this theory, Michael Collins Piper, in his book Final Judgment. Um have, have you looked at all into his Untimely demise.
2: Oh, of course they killed him. I mean, there's just no question. Um, This was the this information which has been out since a minimum when he wrote his book. He goes deep into Dallas, the Dallas community. He talks about the Bronfman family and Sam Bloom, and there's a like people don't realize how entrenched the um, the pre-Israeli Zionist uh, you know connections were in Dallas. They were deep and they were thick, Um, and they were, you know, more irreligious Jews. They were not Orthodox. They were Zionists for sure, but the entrenchment of them in Dallas was thick. I mean, big time. They had their hands in everything. I mean, even like uh, the mayor of Dallas was a CIA agent. You know, like they had, they were all connected. And Collins Piper really deep, dives deep into that. Deep. Uh, you'll have a firm understanding of the of the atmosphere in Dallas once you read uh, Final Judgment. It's the best book on the assassination that's ever been written, and it's the only one that really tries to target the, you know, the big picture of what happened and not focus and get lost in the weeds, you know?
1: Yeah, and also the, the only one whose author pretty much met an untimely demise. Yeah, um, he
2: got – yeah, they killed him. I mean like
1: – It says the deputy coroner's report stated that the cause of death was a probable myocardial infarction. Yes. Ischemic cardiomyopathy and coronary artery disease. Um, now, he was only 54 years old. And from what I've seen in fairly good health, I mean, he wasn't some giant 400-pound dude, you know what I mean? Is it possible he could have had a natural death? Sure. But it, it <laughs> when you when you look at everything that he was talking about, it just seems, like you said, very, very odd to me. And it seems to me like he was taken out.
2: Yeah. Um, I 100% believe that. Um, you're not allowed to, to shake the tree. Um, and if he, was, if he was wrong, they wouldn't have wasted their time. He'd be alive today. If he was wrong, he'd be alive, but he wasn't wrong. He nailed it. Um, and the really, fat, for me, what I found more fascinating than anything was like, how did this come about that we have this country that can go around the world whacking people and why are they doing it? And that's really where I'm at with my research now is that took me on a dive through World War II and the Holocaust and like some, let me tell you this, nothing anyone believes about World War II is true, period. Like it is the, it was the introduction of psychological warfare by the OSS in 1941, who had been piggybacking on the Russian propaganda, which had started in 1939. Um, I'm not going to go into details, but trust me when I tell you, absolutely nothing anyone has been taught about world war ii is true at all um i, agree. And uh-huh. I had to and to understand that that you have to go back into world war one you know and to understand that you got to dive way deeper into the mid-1800s you know so history to me i really wish i had discovered the joys of history like uh, like 10 years ago you know but it is um there's so much information out there if you want to understand the state of the current world um, that it genuinely will take you a lifetime of research on like, like hours a day of research. I let like, no joke. Fortunately, I work for myself. I can get my work done in a couple hours. And then I, I just, uh, I'm glued to documents and, and history books. Uh, you know, and I have a feeling it's not going to let up anytime soon, but to really understand the state of the world, like I said, you got to know Kennedy, you got to know world War. You have to know our history for at least the last 150 years. Hell, you could probably take it back to the American revolution, you know? And, um, but uh, yeah, I got on a bigger picture of things like we are so screwed on a global level that I am I, I, i'm I'm scared out of my my wits for real um and our government is all in on what's happening in the world we're done, man, we're toast like we haven't had a real president since Kennedy, but the funny the ironic part is that Kennedy stole that election from Nixon, <laughs> you know, but the only difference and the is the
1: mob was, helped him do
2: it, <laughs> yeah, and that's why they felt betrayed, you know, but really. Um, if they would have had Nixon in place, Nixon was their guy. Nixon was controlled. He was a puppet. If they'd have gotten Nixon instead of Kennedy, we'd be in the same situation today. So there's really, you know, that's why the assassination is so important. That was the moment that we lost our country. hundred percent. Everybody in it, everybody running the show now is in on this, this new world order Zionist crap. They really are. We're done. We're toast. Um, the CIA basically won the war for them by replacing, um, Everybody in government, every, organ- every part of government got infiltrated by the CIA, every single aspect. Um, and hell, I'm even starting to think that going back to Al Capone, um, this is my own theory. I haven't read this anywhere, but I'm starting to think Al Capone, the whole thing about taxes was just a front. I think he was going to be a force to stop the uh, the you know, Israeli takeover of the mob. And so I think that's why the whole case was uh, set up against him. Because you got to think the guys who were involved, who put that case on above Elliot Ness, you had um, – uh, Malachi Harney, um, who went on to be a longtime uh, government operative, he was definitely he was connected to George White, and he was connected to Anslinger, and he was connected to um, Charles Suragusa. He was connected to all these guys who were directly connected to Angleton. You know what I mean? So um, this whole thing might have started way, way back. You know, it, They might have even just taken out Capone to pave the way for them to take over, because you can't take over a country unless you take over its underworld. Um, that is a necessary step in, uh, in a, in a sub, in subverting a government. Um, because they're the, they're the, uh, you know, they're the muscle. They're the muscle of the government domestically. Uh, or at least they were. I don't know how that is today. I haven't studied the mob today. They seem like they're gone and gone, but they're really not. We just had that like billion dollar cocaine bust. Uh, sure. that was, that was another mob CIA connected thing. Uh, and, uh, there was another one that happened, uh, where they, you know, got a bunch of cocaine off of like a J.P. Morgan boat or something like. I mean, these guys are still doing the same shit. Nothing has changed. The relationships between the, the governments and the mafia and the drugs and the, and it's all the same. And it all needs to end. That's why people need to understand everything that's going on with Kennedy because this is this is what we're left with. We're left with this legacy, you know.
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, and the, and we know the is behind all the drug trafficking, and the FBI is finally, you know. Of course, they they went hard, you know, back in the in the '80s and, and early '90s against the mafia, trying to try and stamp them out a little bit, because maybe they were getting a little too big for their britches, uh, you know, and and maybe cutting the CIA out a little bit when they when they should have been uh, knowing their role as second second in command there. But like you said, you know, nobody really talks about the mafia anymore, but we know they're there, we know what they're doing, and as long as there's good and evil in this world, I mean, that's just the way it's going to be, you know?
2: Yeah. um, The narrative that, you know, America's the good guys and everyone else is the bad guys, that was like a direct result of everything that we've been talking about going back to pre-World War II. Um, And it's a myth. Uh, We are the bad guys. Like, America is the only nation on Earth that's actively, you know, uh, in offensive wars in in seven countries and supports nations who, uh, you know, openly murder journalists and children and and i mean we are partnered with the worst of the worst on planet earth with saudi arabia and israel we really are and um the only reason for it is because we are living in a world governed by the remnants of the nazis through the training and establishment of the security state set in place by reinhardt galen and ted shackley who was arrested in daily fucking plaza oh sorry again (laughs) but uh you know i mean it's um it is really uh appalling and i uh, i'm not gonna take i'm not gonna take this lying down anymore you know i'm going to yeah. uh, hopefully at some point I'll write a book about something or try to get the word out somehow maybe make a movie but yeah um
1: that's because, uh, you know, nowadays i mean they've successfully brainwashed most of america into into thinking this way that you know we're this great we're this great nation and freedom yeah. and democracy reign and you know but we're just open air slaves to the system who, yep. you know, we, we're just, and we're, we're the terrorists, we're the bad guy. And nobody seems to see it except, you know, everybody, the, the rest of the world sees it, of course, you know, and of course our allies try to portray us in a, in a somewhat decent light, but, but you know, all of these countries that we have these supposed um, wars against and, and this, that, and the other, mm-hmm. we're the aggressor, you know, we're, Sure they're going to hate us you know it, if a terrorist comes over here and tries to blow us up, I think they probably have a damn good reason for, for doing it because it probably killed their family. Um, know, that's but... the thing like
2: um, I'm really like I'm, I'm like personally offended by our framing of um, Islam and Muslims as the root of all terrorism. I mean like it, it's just blatantly not true. 911 um, I mean this directly connects to 911 It directly connects to Watergate. Watergate was not about bugging the freaking Democratic office. It was about uncovering information on Hank Greenspun, who had the names of the shooters and wrote a letter to somebody with the names of the shooters in it. The, the Hank Greenspun letter. I have not been able to locate the letter itself, but I've read a lot of commentary on the letter. Um, you want to know who all the shooters were? Like a hundred percent, we gotta get that Sam Greenspun, or we gotta get that Hank Greenspun letter. That Hank Greenspun letter was the root of Watergate. Um and Hopefully we can get that information out to the general public, but the problem is even for people who are learned in this stuff, some of the realizations are so hard to to, to really wrap your head around and accept. Like the average Joe Schmo, you know, well, I don't know if they could ever comprehend this stuff, right? I really don't. And and the takeover has been so slow and subtle that most people don't realize. But see, lately, I think Israel has been overplaying their hand. This censorship stuff that's going on is out of control. Out of control. It's these, it's this kind of financial censorship as well as informational censorship that has led us to the, led the world to create decentralization and technology, right? To create things like Bitcoin or to create things like BitTorrent so that information can be transferred and you don't have to depend on a single central carrier, right? So, right. um, yeah, it's, um, it's pretty. Most uh, people it's pretty have nice no name.
1: idea what the hell is going on. I no, mean,
2: really? No, even guys on the news. You watch news. You know, you watch our newscasters who are all you know, yeah. up mockingbird, and um,
1: they're all told what to say. They all say the same thing. Yeah, you know, and we've then all and like the videos. You know, where you have like twenty different local news station word for word giving you the exact same stories. I mean, yeah. it's. I mean, come um, on,
2: and see. So Nancy Pelosi got in trouble like a year, a couple of years ago, because she talked about the wrap up smear. Um, A wrap-up smear, she basically said, is you you make up a bunch of falsehoods, and then you put it on somebody, and then you get the press to report those falsehoods, and then you have a vindication by the press because you can say, see, the press printed this, and then you merchandise the press report of the smears that you initiated in the first place that are blatantly false. That's called a wrap-up smear, and that particular technique seems to be... The only technique they're using, because all these people are saying, "Oh, they're the bad ones; they're doing this." That's what we're doing, right? So basically, you take your greatest weakness and you project it onto your opponent, and then you merchandise it, and that's what gets you know uh, everyone to believe uh, that what you're saying is correct. Um, that, Nancy Pelosi saying that I thought was just great. That was because uh, she gave she basically spilled the beans on like how governments operate informationally. Um, but. Uh, yeah, so everything that we're told is a lie. Like independent media shows like this are the or really they they need as much help as they can get because you're not going to get information like this on any show and so many independent content producers are just being banned. And so uh I'm I'm going to be launching a show coming up on on uh, the the on debunking police work and all the lies that cops tell. I was a cop for a long time and so I'm only I I don't even know if I want to go on YouTube. I think I just want to use some of these decentralized platforms. Uh, to get the information out because then I know it won't get shut down. Um, but all the censorship and everything that's going on in the world today is directly tied back to Israel, 100%. And um, like, I, I, we, we are in an Israeli colony, pretty much, is what it comes down to.
1: Yes, I agree. All right, Mr. X, I think we, we covered a lot today and I think we, do you think we uh, got it all out? Oh, definitely not.
2: We're going to have to do definitely. this a couple more times. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But, uh, no, realistically, I could talk about Kennedy for probably, I could probably do a hundred hour long episodes and-, and not double back over the same information because of how it branches out so much. And then there's like nitty gritty little specific things that are just interesting, you know? That, I mean, there's plenty and plenty to talk about um, when it comes to the minutiae, but I think we did a good job of getting over the overall big picture. I mean, we know who gave the order, we know who facilitated it, we know more or less that it was the Chicago Outfit Murder, Inc. who pulled the triggers. And we explained the relationship of all all these groupings and how they interact together and how they're not really different organizations. So, yeah, I think we pretty much uh, did a good job of getting all this info out.
1: Good, good. Well, hopefully the people listened and took it all in and paid attention because it's important. I felt it was important. That's why I was, wanted to have you on the show, get this out there. And I understand the need for anonymity, anonymity. Uh, this is dangerous shit. When you start talking about, you know, the real truth of, of of what happened. I mean, you see what happens to certain people involved in the Kennedy assassination when they have knowledge of certain things. You know, they end up dead.
2: Yeah, but you know? also these days with technology, um, I am hundred percent convinced that uh, they're planting child porn on people's computers to lock them up. Um, I believe that that's just the newest technique of silencing people. Um, Anytime you you go look at the list of people who've been busted with child porn on their computers who were involved in some sort of government stuff, it's off the chain. Like, so um, that's another thing. Hello, Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're working with Jeffrey Epstein, and then they're planting child porn on people's computers just to to silence them. I mean, that's just the latest thing. So, uh, I'm not going to have a car crash. I don't have any child porn. Uh, I'm not sick. Anything happens to me, you know what happened, all right?
1: No worries, man. All right. Well, we will definitely have you back on the show for more. Uh, Thank you so much, Mr. X, for coming on and and going through all this with us. really appreciate it.
2: Hey, man, I had a good time, and uh, I'll definitely be
1: back one day. Sure. All right, Mr. X, you hang tight for me. Folks, if you enjoyed the show, please let me know, okay? TheLoneGunmanPodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at thelonegunman seven. All right, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of feedback from these two episodes with Mr. X. So bring it on. I'm ready. We'll we'll help you get there. No worries, folks. All right, until the next time, stay tuned. This is your boy. Peace.